Here we are, May the 8th, 2016, lecture discussion number 240 on the Book of Romans, special Mother's Day edition. So you can expect some Mother's Day sponsored uh, uh, material here today. Keep expecting that. Before we uh, resume what has been best described as a painfully slow trek through the thick mud, I need to mention the thousands and thousands of cards and letters and messages that came to me. Okay, I got 11 uh, in commemoration of Cinco de Stevo. Um, it's a, I, I got one that was a long-distance singing uh, message. Now it's forever preserved on the answering machine of the church, uh, and we have the Cliffside Legal Defense Authority pursuing artistic infringement protections because it was so incredible, and she knows who she is. She's out of state. I just wanted to thank her for that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we're going to market this uh, again. We're always looking for some angle here. So there's that. Bonanza of riches, I'm sure. Actually, I'm always amazed by those of you who call and write. It is very much appreciated, especially the vegetable cake. You might call it carrot cake. But uh, very appreciated. And uh, I'm stunned every year. I can't believe it. And the Internet audience is amazing. And we are grateful for you. And we hope we can... Meet your expectations. Okay, Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Hopefully, we're very nearly complete, near, uh, never finished. We're never finished, if it's anything. I hope you know why that is. The Bible is infinite. We are finite, but at least close enough for now to stop so that I can get back to Numbers 15, 32 through 36 and Luke 14, 1 through 6. You may remember that's the man gathering wood on the Sabbath who is placed on trial and his offense is capital. And all of that is explained by the blue tassel memorial that is then added to the Israel or to the nation of Israel. And then, then of course, the, in Luke 1 through 14, 1 through 6 is the dying, swollen man healed on the Sabbath. So those two Sabbaths uh, correspond. They're the complement of each other, the Old and the New Testament. And we'll get back to that. I have every intention of closing Acts 5 today. We'll see. But that's my intention. I said last Sunday that I believe there are two approaches to Acts 5, 1 through 11. Ananias and Sapphira. One is the deceptive intent or hypocrisy position, which says that Ananias and Sapphira were slain by God because they sought prestige in the new church or in the burgeoning church or in the birth of the church. They sought that prestige without fully committing to the purpose or the meaning, if you will, or the offering. Essentially, their presentation was spurious. Um, the other view, not as common, I need to concede that, says no. Acts 5, 1 through 11 is a continuation of everything prior in the book of Acts. In fact, the instantaneous deaths of Ananias and Sapphira are the culmination of everything prior in the book of Acts. All things contained in Acts 1, 1 through Acts 4, 37. To rephrase that maybe and make more sense, Ananias and Sapphira are executed by the hand of God because of their connections to everything that previously occurs in Acts. 
Put it another way. The elements that have occurred in Acts 4, or 1, 1 through 437 are gathered together and placed in Acts 5, 1 through 11. Obviously, I hold the second position. I believe it is more merited. The first almost places Acts 5, 1 through 11 in a vacuum, in isolation. I know that can't be true. The Bible doesn't do that. We're the ones that pull things out and isolate them and hold them up, it, almost always incorrectly. And I think that, no, that can't be it. it. It's without dispute, Acts 5, 1 through 11 is. Ananias and Sapphira, to me, without dispute, is intrinsically bound to Acts 1, 1 through Acts 4, 37. So if you do separate Ananias and Sapphira away, I think you will fall into error. If you do not bind up everything prior and stick it in there with them. Uh, but shockingly, there are many who disagree with me. And they insist that the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira do in fact stand separate in the book of Acts. It's a very common position. They will grant, however, that the offering of Bar uh, Barnabas is, in fact, contrasted with Ananias. You know that I say they, that they are simultaneous. There's certainly one immediately after the other, but I would tell you that they're likely just very, very close, if not exactly simultaneous. The people that have the separate view or the isolation view, they also acknowledge that the Holy Spirit filling Peter is to be held in opposition with Satan filling the heart of Ananias. So they will concede those two points, but everything else they say is of no impact on Acts 5, 1 through 11 in the sense that we are not to even pay attention to that. We take it as a distinct event that has no context. And I, of course, think that that's never true of the Bible. I think... Uh, Barnabas, for example, as the text reveals, carries the meaning uh, son of encouragement. And that is a profound piece of evidence for the meaning of why God executed Ananias and Sapphira. Once you realize that Barnabas has been renamed from Joseph, essentially, to the son of encouragement, they change his name to son of encouragement, the apostles do. Why did they change his name? They changed his name because of what he did at Acts 4, 31 through 37. What did he do? Clearly, he encouraged people. So we have obvious questions now that we have to consider. Who is in need of encouragement? Who there did he encourage? And for what reasons must they be encouraged? Why did they need encouragement? Barnabas' act, he's a Levite. He divests of his land in Israel. A Levite demonstrating obedience and conformity to Numbers 18.20 and Numbers 18.24. Let me put that on the board for you. you erase this. I should quickly. I, the first thing I just erased... For the internet audience is that uh, Satan is constantly testing God. Satan is constantly, unceasingly testing God. It's what he does. He has a reason for that. 
and his lies are incorporated in his testing. And eventually it's going to get back to Isaiah 14, 14, which we'll do next week. I will be like God. So we'll deal with that. But be aware that Satan, when you find him in Scripture, you can expect a satanic test very close by, if not immediately uh, in front of you. So that happens here in Acts 5, 1 through 11. I have Satan here. That means a satanic test is occurring. It isn't an innocent event by a couple of well-meaning people who just made a little mistake. It's a satanic event. It's clearly identified as such. Now, I'll get into some people's... Um, well, I'll do that here in just a second. Let me continue. Barnabas has an act. He's a Levite. He's selling his land in Israel. He's demonstrating his obedience to numbers. And how do you like my new pen? Isn't it beautiful? It comes all the way from Japan. And it has refills. It's incredible. I should sell them. I don't know that I have the right, but they should contact me because I love them so much now. 1820 through 1824. Okay, that's in numbers where this particular thing that Barnabas does is addressed. People will isolate out Barnabas. They will say, no, he sold land that was really in Cyprus. That makes no sense. It has to have an Old Testament compliment. This is it. So he demonstrates obedience and conformity to Numbers 18.20 and Numbers 18.24. And this is encouraging to somebody who was there, to someone, to someones. So who did he encourage? Why do they need encouragement? And equally obvious is the positioning of Barnabas and Ananias. Barnabas responds to the Holy Spirit for the purposes of encouraging He doesn't do it just for that singular purpose, but he knows that it's going to happen. Because he is now in obedience to an ancient prohibition that that Levites cannot own land in Israel. They cannot. And so he sells land. And he's responding to the Holy Spirit, and that causes this encouragement. And, and that causes people to be filled up. Encourage. What does encourage mean? To be filled up with courage. So I have scared people. Who and what are they scared of? He gives them strengths. He builds them up. He fortifies them. So who needs that? And why do they need it? On the other hand is Ananias, and he is inspired not by the Holy Spirit, but by who? Look at the... Look at the juxtaposition. Let me get rid of all of this, too. One, I can put them side by side. I have Barn here, Barnabas, and I have Ananias. One is Holy Spirit filled. The other one is Satan inspired. That tells you right there what's going to happen. I'm going to look at these two. One is encouraging, providing encouragement. And the other one is doing what? If this is opposite, what do you think is going to happen in the list? Ananias is going to be the opposite all the way down, right? 
He's building up. He's encouraging, giving strength, fortifying. Ananias seeks the opposite. He seeks to destroy. Bring destruction. Tear down. I'm going to even say this. Ananias has come to bring death. He has an offering of death. Barnabas has an offering of life. That's why I made the Cain and Abel references a few weeks ago. Satan wishes for death. It's what he does. If Satan's involved, death is there. Satan wishes for destruction, the death and destruction for anybody. Satan is not particular. He wishes the same, he wishes that all perish, right? Barnabas, you see, we have God, don't we? God wills that none perish. Satan wills that all perish. Now we'll define perish, what it means. But this is what, Second Peter 3 9, I think? Look me up just in case I'm wrong. Send me a letter. But understand that these two are positioned as opposite in my view. I think the, uh, the evidence is overwhelming for that. And I see, I want you to notice that I see a sinister, wicked motivation with Ananias and Sapphira. Has to be the case because of that. Because Satan is inspiring it. And admittedly, to be fair, there are a large group of very skilled, skill may not be the word, right word, very qualified Bible analysts who find a middle ground here. They see Ananias as deceived by Satan, so it's an 80-20 operation they see. Uh, they see uh, Ananias as a useful idiot or a dupe, if you will, not unlike Armageddon. If you follow the Antichrist into Armageddon, what is his plan for you? His plan for his army that is following him is for all of them to die. That is how the Antichrist and Satan operate. Death for everybody. Now, if he can kill Jews and Christians, all the better. But Satan wishes for his followers to perish. Christ wishes for his followers to live. That is a distinction that cannot go unnoticed. So the plan very easily could be for Ananias to kill somebody and then die himself as far as Satan is concerned. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Let's move on. I'll raise the, the objection again that that middle ground position, the whole of Acts 1-1 through Acts 4-37 makes that kind of 80-20 conclusion a difficult endeavor. Just to give you one such example. One of the fundamental aspects of this whole thing is that the the, the high priest... Annas, Caiaphas, they arrest the apostles and they issue a severe threat to stop them. They want them stopped. The 80-20 position runs up against that particular aspect and fails. That's why I set it aside. The high priest sent his temple police force. He arrests the apostles and he finds no way to deny the miracle of the lame man. The lame man miracle is stunning. It's astonishing to them. There's nothing they can do. They can't 
contramand it in any way. The lame man is overwhelming evidence that what Peter is saying is true to everyone that saw it. And he had been in the temple for 40 years. God had, he had, if you wish, God had placed him there for 40 years, knowing that when he restored him, that is evidence that cannot be disputed. And so they severely threatened them, Acts 4.17, Acts 4.21. And I asked last week, what is a severe threat? Would you get, you get a severe threat from the high priest, uh, the pharisaical aspect of that society, the elders, the rulers, the scribes, the temple guard, all, the temple police force. They issue you a severe threat. What are they telling you? We're going to take away your driving privileges. A severe threat from those people is always the same thing. Again, I'm back to here. It's death. There cannot be any other possibility. The apostles are a tremendous difficulty for the high priest. They're, they're taking people away. And those people are no longer in the parish column. They're going to the non-parish column. These are, this is the brood of Satan we're talking about here. Right? <coughs> Anyway, before we dwell, dwell, delve back into that deep water of, uh, of Acts 4.17, Acts 4.21, which is the severe threat. Just let me say this really fast. The severe threat is happening in Acts. Does that make sense? Acts 5, 1 through 11. Repeat, repeat that. The severe threat that was issued at Acts 4.17 to 4.21 is occurring at Acts 5, 1 through 11. Does that make sense? Did I say that well enough this time? So, what was said here, they issued a severe threat. They said, stop doing what you're doing and saying what you're saying. Stop it. We can't deny it, but you don't do it. And you don't say it. And if you don't stop it, we're going to take you out. You're going to be killed, all of you. And they pray. They're not afraid. I'm getting back into encouragement, aren't I? You read the text, they pray. They're not at all afraid of being killed. They expect death. But they, they pray for strength and more boldness to say what they're saying louder, to be more aggressive. And of course, that's when the Holy Spirit comes, shakes the room, and they come out with more power. So that severe threat now is being displayed for us in Acts 5. I'll get back to that in a minute. I want to uh, cement Barnabas the Levite in the passage as much as I can, as much as possible. So let's go back and read where this all starts. And that would be Numbers 18.6. The reason for Acts 4. 1 through 5, 11 is Numbers 18.6. That's the beginning. You always find the beginning in the Old Testament for a New Testament question. Here's what God says. Behold. Notice this is going to happen a lot. Behold. Whenever you see behold in the Bible, an extraordinary 
doctrinal truth is about to be given to you, something that is mysterious, something that is amazing, something that is life-changing. Behold, I myself have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel. They are a gift to you, given by the Lord to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. What God is saying there, behold, something amazing, a doctrine of great importance is going to be revealed now. God himself is setting aside, he's separating, he's taking out the Levites from all of Israel. They are a gift from him to the nation of Israel, a gift from God to his nation Israel, and they're going to do the work of the tabernacle. They're a gift, and this is incredible doctrine. So, What's the work of the tabernacle? If I ask for one word, what's going on in the tabernacle? One word. Blood. The gift to Israel is these men sacrificing animals. Substitutionary sacrifices. Blood, blood, and more blood. Trenches filled with blood. Thousands upon thousands of animals. Ceremonial procedures. They're covered in blood, these men. And they are a gift to Israel. And all of that, the entire ceremonial system, the sacrificial system, the cleansing provisions, all of the aspects of the Levite priesthood is a gift. And all of it testifies of Jesus Christ. All of it is about Christ. He's in every single drop of blood. Every single puff of smoke. Every ingredient. Every tiny grain. That's him. It's all testifying of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. Now, Numbers 18, 19 through 20. We'll, we'll go 20 through 24 as well. We'll pick it all up together. Here's Numbers 18, verse 19. All the heave offerings of the holy things with which the children of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is the covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. He's talking to Aaron and the Levites that he has separated out. He is saying, I have given you the heave offering. Uh, It is a covenant of salt forever that I have given you and your descendants. Then the Lord said to Aaron, okay, so he first he tells them, if you will, to sum it up, I have given you something that's forever, and I've given it to you and your children. Then the Lord says to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. You can't own land in Israel, is what he tells them. And then verse 21. Behold, here we go again. Another behold. So, something incredible is going to happen again. I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform. Hereafter, the children of Israel shall not come near the temple of the meeting lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting 
and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that among the children of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore, I have said to them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. Think of it this way. You want to leave your land to your children. The, Is- the Levites got no land to leave. The only thing the Levites could leave is what? The sacrificial system. What is the sacrificial system? It's a statute forever. Behold. The Levites, because they have been given to Israel to perform all these ceremonial sacrifices and the like, because they have been set aside for that, they get tithes of Israel. They get the first fruits, if you will. And all those tithes, all those first fruits, those are typifying Christ. Because of that, The children of Israel can't come near the tabernacle anymore, or they're going to die. So what does that mean for the Levites? What position are they in? The Levites can go near the tabernacle, but the children of Israel can't go to the tabernacle, lest they die. So what's the Levites? Where is God? He's in the tabernacle. Congregation can't go there. Only the Levites can go there. So what are the Levites? And what do the Levites do? They take the sacrifices brought to them. They pull out the first fruits for themselves. And then what do they do with the other sacrifice, sacrificial materials? They go and offer them to the Lord. They can do that, but not you. You have to have a what? Yes, you have to have an intercessor, a mediator. And that is one of the great beholds. Jesus Christ is established as the mediator right here in Numbers 18, the mediator between the judgment of God and his creation, and it is a statute forever. And this is the inheritance that the Levites get. They get to be a type of this mediation. They're the ones covered in blood, if you will. And because they have that incredible truth, they can't own land, but they have that truth. That's their inheritance. This is the inheritance of the Levite, this statute, this forever statute. Now, I am obviously applying that to, I'm applying Numbers 18 to Acts 4.36 through 5.11. What's going on there is Barnabas finally figures out that he's a Levite and that his inheritance is not land. And what's he got? He's got land. And he gets rid of it. That's why I always ask, what did he sell it for? The answer is, he doesn't care. He has to sell it for enough for it to be legal, and so what does he do with it? Whatever money he's got. He gets rid of it as fast as he can. This is not about the money. It's about owning the land when you're not supposed to because you understand the truth of what you have. Instead, because of why you were taken out in the first place, separated out. Now, let's go back here and look specifically at Barnabas. Let's look at this Levite Barnabas. 
what specifically, what exactly got to Barnabas. He is watching something. He's following the apostles around, isn't he? He's a Levite. Why is he following the apostles around? Is he just curious? Hey, I'm a Levite. These guys seem to be interesting. I'll go follow them around. That's choice number one, part of the crowd, just going for it. Great guy, Barnabas, always been a good guy. Is that what you think? Or do you think he's more like who? Let's throw Saul out there for you. If Saul was following you around, do you have a problem? Yes, you do. Saul, who became Paul, was hunting people. He was a killer. A murderer of hundreds, women and children. A brutal killing machine was the Apostle Paul when he was Saul. Okay? So, what is Barnabas? Good guy or bad guy? You can figure that out on your own while I move ahead. But we're going to read, read this portion. Something flipped him. And let's see if we can find it. I think it leaps off the page. You may disagree. Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, remember, they are under severe threat. They're going to be killed. And they know it, and so they pray. And they ask for, I'll read that. Now, Lord, look on, look on their threats and grant to your service that we all, that with all boldness they may speak your word. In other words, they're saying, we're under a death threat but we want not to be afraid. We want to be, in fact, the opposite of afraid. We want to be bolder yet. So here we go. And when they had prayed, verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Was, was Barnabas inside that room? The evidence is, is that the apostles were inside that room. I'm going to add one more guy. Who am I adding? The lame man. I think he's inside that room. I don't think you could separate him from Peter with a scalpel. That guy is hooked on forever. He's roped himself in. Wherever Peter goes, he's 40 years he's been completely incapacitated. And now he is running around like I should fill this story in really fast. As you know, I fell down. Those of you on the Internet may not know this, but I fell down again because I fall down a lot now. It's something I can't stop. I drove my knee into the ground or actually into a bunch of plywood as hard as I physically could because I couldn't get my hands in front of me before I hit the floor. And I, my knee swelled up the size of a cantaloupe and my whole leg felt swelled up with blood. So what did I do? I went out to play softball. And that's exactly what I did. And because I'm in a league of very highly skilled players who can uh, hit the ball very hard, you won't care about the physics of this, but they can produce an uh, exit velocity on a softball in excess of 100 miles an hour. So almost not everyone in this league can do that, but there's enough of us that can. So where do I play? I play as close as I possibly can without pitching which is third base. And so a guy came up and he drove one, and I can do the math for you. I'm 70 feet away. It's 105 miles an hour. Figure out how fast it's on me, and I have a knee the size of of a grapefruit at minimum. Watermelon, it feels like. 
I couldn't move fast enough. I got in front of it. That was a mistake. That was suicidal. Anyway, where do you suppose it hit me? It missed the knee by about a foot, but it hit the ankle. I thought it broke my shin. It hit so hard. So I go down in a heap, and I cry like a baby. I Actually, I heard a baby crying and then realized it was me. Uh, that was the order of that. Not really, but I felt like it. I was absolutely miserable, and of course, being the old tough guy that I used to be, I thought, well, I'll walk it off. And I tried that for about 30 seconds, and then I said, the umpire's looking at me like, you need to go to the hospital, you idiot. And uh, he is aware that old people are not fully cognizant of their failure. So I told you that because I now have one leg. The blood in my entire right side of my body has gone down to my foot. That's what's happened. It's really cool if you'd like to see it later. Um, And uh, what's going on is if I were to walk barefoot through the woods, I'll wait for the phone to stop. Is it for me? Gosh, it's never for me. But if I were to walk barefoot through the woods uh, and they saw my footprint trail, the uh, Bigfoot people would be thrilled. I would be on TV because my foot is that large. I look like a hobbit down there. Anyway, all of that to say is I really understand what it's like to be physically hurt now more than ever as life is going on for me. And to be restored to vitality would be a thrill for me. I can't wait for that to happen now. Now having experienced this condition, It's going to be glorious to be able to function again. You have no idea. Some of you understand this better than I do, but I'm catching up with you. And this man is 40 years infirmed in a condition that is hopeless, and he is not letting go of Peter, and that's why I think he is in that room. It's an extraordinary thing. He shows up with Peter everywhere. I believe he's standing next to Peter, as you know, when Ananias brings his offer. Certainly there when Barnabas does. Anyway. Let me continue. Okay, so, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. These are men that had witnessed uh, the resurrection of Christ. So, that's the apostles and not the lame man. Now we go to verse 32. And the multitude of those who believed, so Barnabas is in this multitude, I believe, were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. And they had all things in ordinary, not common. They recognized that all physical matter was ordinary. What was not ordinary is supernatural material, which is living souls. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. So in there is something that turned Barnabas. What was it? We will take suggestions from the floor while I try to sell product. I will help you. And with great power, the apostles, let me repeat it, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
The speaking of the word with boldness causes a response, as does the evidence and the witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is given with great power. So what's the question that comes following that? How great do you suppose the great power was? Did you imagine uh, a Southern Baptist preacher talking funny and screaming? You think that's great power? Probably not. It's easy for me to do, though. Ask why. What did this sound like? They spoke and gave the evidence of Jesus Christ's resurrection and they did it with great power. What did it feel like? What did it seem? How did it look? How did it feel? How great was the great power? Barnabas the Levite responds. He sells his land that he was forbidden in the first place from even having. But obviously he had it. And by the way, as you know, Pastors in every city in the, in, the, in the world have money. That's something that we should worry about. But they usually are the richest people in every town they're in. Never mind. I'll rant. But Barnabas the Levite got money and he bought land in Israel. He was forbidden to do that. It didn't matter to him at the time. And he refuses to keep the money that he never should have had, and he sells the land. So he has responded to the great power, and he is now in compliance with Numbers 18, 20 through 24. And that, by the way, gives courage to people. And they, know they need courage because they're what? Afraid. Who are they afraid of? They have fear. Lots of fear. So over the pall, if you will, the cloud over all of this is fear in the people. And Barnabas is moved. This Levite is moved. Who is this Levite? What was he there to do in the first place? Like I said, is he an innocent follower just trying to find the truth? How many Levites are there and what are they there for? We'll get to that in a minute. But Barnabas now is no longer... A non-believer, he's a believer and he demonstrates it and that gives great encouragement. They're not afraid of Barnabas at least. But I've got fear over this group and they need strength. And Barnabas complying with Numbers 18, 20 through 24 gives courage. I should interject John eleven twenty-five here. What I call Christ, yes or no. I don't do it enough. Now that we're on the internet, I need to do it more. I am the resurrection and the life, is what Jesus Christ says in John 11:25. I am. He's telling you that he is the I am. The resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I do this at every funeral. It's a yes or no question. Notice how he writes it or how he says it. I am the resurrection and the life. There's only one resurrection. There's only one life. One who can resurrect and one who is the source of life. It's him. He who believes that. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Yes or no? You can't help but answer that. 
Everyone who hears it answers it yes or no. There is no salvation in any other name, Acts 4.12. That is what the apostles are saying. Do you believe this, yes or no? And the Pharisees or the, the high priest, the Sadducees or the Sanhedrin, they're trying to stop them from saying there is no other salvation in any other name. There is no salvation in any other name. They're trying to stop them from say, saying that. Which pretty much is a statement that uh, Peter constantly repeats that launches the Pharisees' severe threat system. They gotta kill him because he's running around saying that there's no name by which man must be saved except for Christ. Christ is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Yes or no? It's also 1 John 3.23. This is his commandment, Christ says there. This is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. John says that. Christ issues to us a direct order from the commander, from the creator. Believe that he is the resurrection and the life, light of life or not. But we're ordered to believe it. It's a commandment to believe in his name, yes or no. Obey the commandment, obey the direct order from the God of creation or reject. Believe or disbelieve. A Barnabas decided what? To believe. He was given the order. That's what Peter did. He was a Levite. He knew he shouldn't own land. He was obedient. He sold the land. He obeyed the order. The great power that gave witness to the resurrection of Christ caused Barnabas to finally obey Numbers 18, 20 through 24. As a Levite, his inheritance would be what now? He had no land to leave his family. What did he have? All he had was one thing, one inheritance. He had Christ, and he would testify that this was so, that he, by submitting to Numbers 18.20, he now had one thing to pass on to his family. And you fathers out there, you really got one thing you get to pass on. That's all you got. I think it's obvious that Barnabas is moved by the great power of the resurrection and the great grace. And that is the backdrop, if you will, of what comes next. What comes next? Ananias and Sapphira. And we're presented with the agency of Satan. Satan, if you want to think of it this way, is responding now. He's responding to the Levites who are selling land. So he acts. He has a reaction. It's Satan's work. We have the moving of the Holy Spirit, and now we have the counter move of Satan. We have life followed by death. You see, I've always asked, of the multitude that was there, how many were Levites? And of those Levites, how many were temple police? They issue a severe death threat. Do you think that's all they did? Hey, you do this again, we're going to hunt you down and kill you. Okay, go back. What did the temple police do? They followed them. They moved inside their operations. 
How many in the multitude were temple police? How many in that multitude were in the employ of the Sanhedrin? How many in the multitude uh, were from the council of the high priest? Providing intelligence, reporting the events, awaiting instructions. They knew what the severe threat. Do you think this is the first group of people that got a severe threat from the Sanhedrin? They had an operation in place. They had contingencies. They had scopes. They had everything you would have in a normal business, wouldn't you? Certainly in a normal government system, they had a pattern in which they operated in. The uh, apostles knew that. That's one of the reasons they pray as they do. I've always wondered, as you know, who these young men that carried out Ananias were. I think I've made it clear what I think. They're carrying out a dead body. What makes, what, when they carry out a dead body, what happens to them? They're unclean. They have to go through the cleansing provision. What is the cleansing provision? And they would know it, by the way, every Jew would know it. So who would get up and grab that, that dead body? Who grabs dead bodies in this culture? They carried out the dead body of Ananias. They wrapped the body and they buried the body. Now, who would know how to do all of that? Levites would know how to properly dispose of a body, wouldn't they? Certainly a body of an executed man. There's actually... There's actually scripture given on how to take care of a man that has been executed. And make no mistake, Ananias was executed. His offense was a capital offense. This is a grave crime. I also cannot escape the order of Numbers 18 and Numbers 19. I just told you about selling land. I have this wonderful order. Don't own any land. Numbers 18 the gift of the Levites to Israel from God himself. The sign of the gift of the Levites to Israel, the sign that says that this gift is there, that sign that verifies, that confirms that they are, in fact, given to Israel to perform these sacrifices, is that no Levite can possess land. If Levites are possessing land, I have perverted the reason that Levites are not to own land and I have destroyed the sign that they are a gift for the purposes of shedding substitutionary blood as a type of Christ. What do you think Numbers 19 that comes immediately after that is about? What do you think? Take a guess. You can guess here. If this is an orderly book, somebody wrote it right. Whoever wrote Acts 5 if he acts, and Acts 4, if he actually wrote Numbers 18 and 19, what do you think would happen? In Acts 4, I have the sign of Levites not owning land. What would I have next? I would have disposing of a dead body. What do I have in Acts 4 and Acts 5? I have that. I have it in Numbers 18 and 19. Numbers 19 is how to dispose of a dead body. Whoever wrote this book was really good at it. He continually is lucky in his order. God is so lucky. Numbers 19. Numbers 18 is the gift of the Levites to Israel from God himself. The sign is the Levites possess no promised land. Numbers 19 is the instructions for the touching of a dead body. The ashes of the red heifer. The cleansing provision for those who have contact with the dead. Numbers 18 and 19. Acts 4 and 5. Same order. Important that you know that. Anyway... 
a often raised concern for Acts 5 by many is what is the purpose of the killing of Ananias and Sapphira? They think it's out of place. They all, they see in Acts this abundance of miraculous healing and joy. They don't see the order of Numbers 18 and 19. They see the Holy Spirit moving powerfully. Powerfully. I can't stand the fact that I can't talk anymore. I can't catch a routine ground ball with third. Okay, it was going over 100 miles an hour. What do you want? Lucky I didn't get hit in the face. It's happened before. Can't you tell? Anyway, I have trouble talking now. I should never watch myself again, but I can't help it. It's like some kind of narcotic. I watch it for about two minutes and then run vomiting from the computer screen. I really seem to. It's it's horrifying. Okay. People think Acts 5 is out of place. There's all this abundance, miraculous healing. Holy Spirit is powerfully all over. Salvation is coming to a multitude. And then I have the execution. I have two put to death. So they say, why? This, we have all this happiness, all of this salvation. We have two put to death. Why is this even here? Why do we have this downer story in the middle of, of all of this wonderful stuff? Again, I propose that what has occurred is, co- is previously, what occurred previously is being coalesced at Acts 5, 1 through 11. So all of it has been gathered together and put in Acts 5, 1 through 11. The apostles were threatened with death if they continued to preach the exclusivity of the name of Christ. Only Christ's name saved. If they don't stop saying that, they're going to be killed. If they don't stop saying that the resurrection of Christ is proven, they're going to be killed. Severe death threat. A contingent force was dispatched. Why? Because they knew they weren't going to stop. So they have to go get them. They warned them. They expected fully that they wouldn't comply. I dispatched my temple guard who knows what to do. The captain and his temple guard, a plan is activated. The threat was now being enforced, and thus the contrast emerges. If Ananias had come to seize Peter, Peter would then be what? Condemned and executed. And as would be John. They were the two that were specifically named. Isn't it ironic that the one that is seized and slain is Ananias? His intent was to seize and kill, and he is, in fact, seized and killed. And note now the impact on the young men, Acts 5, 5. Because people say, what's the purpose of Acts 5? Why is it even here? What's the purpose of it? It doesn't belong here. It's not happy talk. We want happy talk in church. We don't want to talk about killing people on Mother's Day. There's your special Mother's Day sermon. In case you were wondering... Where it is. Most of the time, as Dave pointed out, I talk about circumcision on Mother's Day. But this time we're talking brutal execution. <laughs> they want to know how come this, this is here. What's the purpose of it? Look at the Acts 5.5. 5. We'll read this. When Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. 
I didn't read it right. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon those who heard these things. Uh Uh-oh. Now I went from fear to great fear. I have, I have great grace. I have great power. And now I have great fear. That is not an accident. And that is the purpose of Acts 5. That is the purpose of God. That is why the Holy Spirit has placed this here. This is why the Holy Spirit intervenes. God is always going to protect his plan of salvation. And great fear happens here. Happens twice. Great fear with Ananias, great fear with Sapphira. And that is, again, the opposite of great power and great grace. The opposite of great power and great grace. I should probably put that on the board. I'm afraid I'm running out of time, though. The opposite of great fear is great power and great grace. Great fear came upon all who heard these things. They heard the entire trial. They saw Ananias fall, and and they also went out and told people. So included in the all, in my view, it would be the high priest, the elders, the rulers, the scribes, the temple police, eventually. But the people that heard all of these things, that heard the trial, saw Ananias go down, saw his death. That death was extraordinary. There was no escapee, uh, no no dispute over who, no controversy. Who killed him? God killed him. And great fear. When God kills people, you're going to have great fear. Great fear came upon the young men because they heard it all. Now, if you're in the group, let's just assume that we're all in the group. Call ourselves all young men. That will take a great deal of imagination. In some people's cases, don't laugh, Dave. So, let's imagine that we're young men. A man comes in and God kills him. And he has young men behind him. And great fear comes over all of us and all of them, everybody. If we're the young men, great fear comes over us because Ananias just goes down in a heap. What would we do? What would you do if you saw that? You, if you were like me, would run. I know... This is bad news for me. The young men do not run. What do they do? They dispose of the body. Numbers 19. That is extraordinary to me. That struck me as an odd detail. They don't run. They take the body. But you see, when you reject so great a salvation, Hebrews 2, 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Then great fear comes instead of great grace. And they had great fear. They knew whose side who was on. There was no dispute there either. A severe threat of mankind is meaningless and consequent when confronted by the great fear of judgment. Great fear is especially reserved for those who seek to kill the messengers of salvation by Christ alone. Ananias, those young men, if I'm correct, or temple police, they came to enact that severe threat and seize Peter and John and have them executed for disobeying the high priest, which would have been totally, completely uh, 
allowed as long as they had the evidence of it. So, as you might remember, evidence is involved in this. Imagine the plan of the priests. Let's go and lie to the omniscient God. Lying to omniscience. That's your plan, really? Hiding from omniscience? That's your uh, omnipresence? That's your next plan? Killing omnipotence. There's my favorite. Who, what idiot would write a book entitled Killing Omnipotence? Who would buy it? What news station would he work for? Oh, I digress. Great fear came over these young men and they disposed of the body. Just like great fear came over Ananias, I'm sorry, over Barnabas. And he sold his land. If you reject the great grace and you reject the great power, then you are left with the great fear. And that is what's happened here. It isn't about the money. God doesn't have need of money. Duh. Stop with the tithing sermons on Acts 5, please. God owns our very souls. Matthew 10:28, the words of him who gave us existence, who owns us, who created all things. Christ says this, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Satan, Ananias, the high priest, the elders, the temple police, they can do what? They can impact the physical aspect. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Who is that? Who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul? Don't fear them because they're going to have great fear of what? Of who? Rather, fear Christ who is able to send the body and the soul to destruction or perdition. Notice how he says that. Fear him. Fear me, who is able. Put that on the board. Christ is declaring himself able to do what? To judge. Watch this. Thank you. That was incredible. Fear me, he says. I am able to send the body and the soul to destruction. Christ is able to judge. He is able. Why? Because he has purity. Don't feel, fear the one that is not, is impure. Don't fear the impure. Fear the one who has total, complete goodness and omnibenevolence. If you have omnibenevolence, if you're perfectly good, always good, which he says he is because he's now able to judge sin. You have to be pure good to judge sin. He is pure good. If he has omnibenevolence, he has to have omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. He can't be anything but always those. Satan's lie is founded on the premise that God is the author of evil and sin and therefore not able to judge. And Christ says, I am the one who can judge, and I will the one be the one who sends the soul into the place of destruction. And ultimately, that will take us next week to Isaiah 14, 14. Satan's claim that he will be like God. How is everyone doing with Sapphira showing up three hours late? 
You got that figured out? Did you go get your three hours references from the Old Testament? Where's the Old Testament complement for the three hours? Did you go to the other three hours in scriptures? Believe it or not, a prevailing view on Sapphira is that she went shopping. That really is. I wish I I wasn't kidding about that. That's really what they say. They say Sapphira went shopping for three hours. She took the money that she got from the land. That's what they say. I'm not kidding. It's not the money. Please. Stop. Make him stop. It's nothing to do with the money. Next week, you will solve that in the interim. And if you don't, I will help you. Maybe. Depends on how well you do, I guess. Let's the musicians come forward.